0: Well, we are continuing our trip through the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd encourage you to open them up to Luke chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, not only as I read but as I go through this text, uh, you'll find a Bible in the row in front of you, underneath, uh, somewhere in that row. And, And if you use that Bible, you will find... Today's text on page 860. Now it says on our bulletin, Luke 4:31 through 41. Uh, I went back and forth this week on how much to cover, uh, and I decided, kind of at the last minute, that uh, that we're going to go through 44. Uh, I'm just going to touch on that section at the end, but I think it fits. Uh, so Luke chapter 4. Verses 31 through 44, it says, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Well, if you were here the last uh, time we preached from Luke's gospel, uh, you know that we, the last text that we covered was Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Uh, as you know, as you can see, if you're paying attention, we have skipped over the, the very next section. Uh, Jeff was going to preach on that section last Sunday, uh, but as you even heard this morning, uh, Catherine's father really took a turn for the worst, and so he went down to Virginia, and, uh, and Stan was gracious enough, Stan Gale, to uh, fill the pulpit for us last Sunday, So, uh, Jeff is, of course, in Virginia, uh, this today as well, Uh, and so I'm just going, we've skipped forward, and when Jeff comes back, Lord willing, and preaches on March 17th, uh, he will go back to that section, and you'll get a full exposition of it. But I do want to make one point in that section, and that is that uh, Jesus has returned From where he was baptized and where he was tempted, which was south toward Jerusalem, and uh, and he was in the wilderness there, and that's where he faced the temptation of Satan. But but he has returned to the area around the Sea of Galilee. If you guys could put that uh, map picture up first, so he's gone north to the area of the Sea of Galilee, and he went first to his hometown. You can see there Nazareth. That was his hometown, that was where he was uh, raised as a a child and a a young man and and where he lived and worked uh, as a carpenter, I'm sure, with his father. Uh, And he went back and he first entered the synagogue in Nazareth and preached there. And he unrolled, uh, they gave him the scroll of Isaiah, and as Jeff will will preach to you uh, in a few weeks, he came to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he read that passage, and when he closed it up, he said, that text applies to me. I am the fulfiller of that text. And that text in Isaiah 61 is about the Messiah. Only one person in the world could have read that text and said, that applies to me, because it's written in the first person. And so Jesus read the text and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. He has anointed me to heal diseases. He has anointed me to set free those who are oppressed. And I bring that up because I think it sets the context of what happens now. Uh, He has just proclaimed these amazing things about himself. That he is specially anointed by God as the Messiah to preach the word with authority. To heal diseases and to free those who are under oppression. It's one thing to make boasts. It's another thing to back it up. And in our text today, Jesus backs up those claims. Now, our text says that he goes down to Capernaum. You see that in verse 31. Now, if you look at the text, or to put up the map again, if you look at the map, Nazareth is south of Capernaum. See, Capernaum is right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. But again, I just remind you that the, when the Bible speaks going down, it doesn't mean uh, directionally north, south, east, west, like we would think, but, but in, the, in the sense of, of uh, elevation. So, Capernaum is much lower then Nazareth. Nazareth sits up. You can kind of see it's in the mountainous regions there. Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and it ends up being Jesus's sort of home headquarters. Now, you can move on to the next uh, couple of... Okay, so when I was in Israel, we went to Capernaum. There you see it, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. Uh, there, there we were going into the town. You can go to the next one. Uh, that is the Sea of Galilee, so it sits right on the sea. Uh, you can go to the next one. There it is again, just to give you a sense of what it looks like. Uh, it's a you know, pretty big body of water. And go ahead. Uh, there are my dad and I uh, standing in front of the sea. That was 2013. Uh, you can see we were at a reformed Anglican service that morning, uh, and it was an Ash Wednesday service. So that's why it's ashes on my forehead. Um, We're standing there in front of the sea. Go ahead. Uh, Now, that, you see, is a structure that says Petro on it, right? Uh, That structure, go ahead and and go to the next one. It sits above that. And that is, archaeologists believe, Peter's house. Uh, It's right there in Capernaum. You can visit it. That is the home that we'll hear about today, where his mother-in-law lay sick with a fever, um, and I can't go in it, but you can stand there, and that building is built over top of it, and you can look down through the glass uh, at the house. Go ahead to the to the next one, and then that uh, is what the house uh, looks like down below. As you kind of you can get a, a, a shot of it down there. So that was the house, and then the next one. Uh, also, they have unearthed uh, what they believe was the synagogue that Jesus taught in. So, uh, so there's a lot there that you can go visit, and then uh, and, and, and I'm just trying to give you a sense of what it kind of looked like. Uh, so the synagogue and the house that we will hear about today, you can go visit. Thank you uh, for those, I think that's all, yeah. Um, so Jesus enters the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, he begins to teach them, and, and our text tells us that uh, the people were astonished. And again, this isn't the first time they've been astonished. Uh, go back to when he was 12 years old. Uh, there he taught in the temple in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old, and as he uh, answered and talked to the teachers there, they were blown away at, at, at his understanding of the word. So again, they are astonished. But here we see that it's, it's a little bit of a different take on it, because the teachers then were astonished that this 12-year-old could know so much. This 12-year-old had such a command of of the Scriptures, but here we see that maybe it's a little bit different. It it says that they were astonished because his word possessed authority. Now, what does that mean, that his word possessed authority? Well, we will see in a minute uh, what kind of authority his word possessed, but perhaps what they were thinking of at first when he was just doing the teaching is that Jesus' teaching was very different from that of the rabbis. Uh, When you you read about what the teaching was like back then, scholars say that that rabbis really never wanted to say anything that was original to them. Uh, What they wanted to do was quote illustrious predecessors and say, you've heard it said this, and that's exactly right, and then they would quote some great scholar from the past and then they would just teach that. One rabbi, uh, ancient rabbi, is quoted as saying, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. That, that was their tradition. Now, if you've read the New Testament, specifically one of Jesus' longest and, and maybe his most well-known teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, uh, what do you see when you read that? Well, you see Jesus over and over again saying, you've heard it said this, but, but I say this, right? Uh, he was constantly countering what they had been, say, uh, been taught. You've heard it said all these things, but, but I'm here to tell you that in reality it's this way. What would he say? He would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And he would teach them. Amen, amen. He would say, this is so be it, before he even said what he was about to say. Jesus spoke with authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, not not so much because he knew so much, because at this point now he's a grown man, but because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes taught them. That was what astonished them. Now when we look at how Jesus taught, we we see that he did not have to quote others to validate what he said. He didn't have to do it. He was his own authority. In fact, for Jesus to to turn around and say, after all, as this rabbi once said, and if you just consult him and his work, you'll see that I'm right. Right? For him to do that would be to lower his own authority. God has no other, no higher authority than himself. God can only swear by himself. For God to swear by anyone else would be to lower his own standard of truth. Notice that, that the only thing Jesus ever quoted, that he even acted as though it was his equal was the inscripturated Word of God. When Jesus met Satan in the desert, he he could have, like I said uh, when we went through that, he could have said anything to Satan and it would have been the Word of God. Whatever he said in that moment would have been true and it would have been absolutely infallible. But what did he choose to do? As it is written, not you've heard it say, Satan, what this rabbi said, no, as it is written, and he quoted the Word of God. Jesus treated himself and the Bible as though it were its own authority. It needs no higher authority. It needs no validation. The Word of God stands or falls by itself. It attests to itself. I don't get up here in the morning and and read this and say, Maybe you should do this. Maybe this is true. Now, I will say that if I'm not sure about what it's saying. But if we're sure of what it's saying, then you preach it as though it is the Word of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, The authority of Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, the Word of God is to be received because it is the Word of God. And our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth of the divine authority is, again, not from any outward man or church, but from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. That's what Jesus was doing. He was preaching and teaching with authority. And it was Jesus's authoritative teaching that created this outburst in the synagogue. Luke tells us, beginning at verse 33, that in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He was demon-possessed. Now, I can't possibly in this sermon give you an exhaustive study of angels and demons. But there is plenty written about it, and if you're interested, I can point you to good resources after the service ends. But suffice it to say that from what Scripture explains and what we can gather from the Word of God, a demon is a fallen angel. Angels are creatures. They are in the spiritual realm, they exist beyond, behind the veil of what we can see. Sometimes they make themselves manifest in the visible realm. But Satan, who is himself a fallen angel, it tells us in Revelation chapter 12, rebelled against God, and that when he rebelled against God and was defeated by Michael the archangel along with other angels he took with him a third of the heavenly host that fell with him and they became his entourage in a sense they they are the fallen angels they are the demons the bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air and as a prince he has servants and Jesus himself says When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus makes it very clear. That Satan is real and that he has his angels by his side. Now, I think there are two general ways people can go wrong with Satan and angels and those things. I think one way is to essentially see a demon or Satan behind every rock. Uh, you know, you, like you've heard people say that. I mean, even, even I sometimes get, you know, can get caught up as, you know, let's say Meadowcroft is just, we're trying to succeed at something. It seems like we can't. You know, we can't really get there or, or you know, we, we, something always kind of goes wrong, you know, the copier break, whatever. It's, it's very easy and tempting right away to say, you know, Satan's attacking us. We're under the attack of Satan. Satan can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent like God. Uh, chances are, even if you are being attacked by a dark spiritual force, it's probably not Satan himself. Satan went straight to Christ in the wilderness, but he has many, again, in his entourage. Now, the other, I think, that is much more common today is to to dismiss Satan and demons as completely fictional, imaginary. Uh, It's just a fable. It's nonsense. And that is, again, both are equally unbiblical. The Bible teaches that Satan is real. The Bible teaches that demons are real. Christians, those who possess the Holy Spirit inside of them, cannot be possessed by a demon. Because Scripture says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. For a demon to possess a Christian, he would have to first overpower God Himself, which is impossible. However, demonic possession is clear in Scripture. And I, when I was helping uh, this uh, man who had uh, been uh, born and raised in the inner city of Baltimore and was involved in gangs and gang fighting, uh, he had been shot in the stomach at point blank, which blew out his spinal cord. And uh, he was lay- lying in the streets of Baltimore, bleeding out and dying. And he said, everyone passed him by except suddenly a white man who stopped picked him up put him in his car and drove him to the hospital and he said white men just weren't you never saw them where I was from but this guy came out of nowhere took him to the hospital they came out put him on a stretcher and when he turned to look at the man to thank him he was gone that was his first inclination that perhaps this was an angel well, in fact, he was healed, uh, the doctors brought him back, he's now in a wheelchair, and he does prison ministry, he's now saved. And he asked me to accompany him to preach to the men in prison. But he told me that, that uh, in the gangs in, in, in which he ran, demonic uh, worship and satanic worship and demonic possession was rampant, something which I never even thought of. But he said it's all over the place in there. I told this story once before. Uh, Forgive me if you've already heard it, but we have a lot of new people here. Uh, My dad was, uh, when he was in his 40s or so, uh, he can correct all of this when we get home, but this is the gist of it. Uh, My sister Karen was uh, a young, maybe 13-year-old, playing with a Ouija board uh, that he didn't know about, and... uh, One night he was asleep in bed and he awoke and looked and he saw what he thought was Karen walking into their bedroom, Uh, looked just like her, had blonde hair, a flowing kind of glowing white gown and walked right up beside him and leaned over. And when this, what he thought was Karen leaned over, this figure had the face of a demon staring him right in the face. And he was so scared that he shook and he woke my mom awake, who was asleep beside him. And she looked over and his eyes were wide open and he could not speak. No words were coming out of his mouth. He said it's the most afraid he's ever been in his life. And she had to, in a sense, snap him out of it. Uh, Well, uh, they got up from bed immediately. My dad said, there's something evil in this house they went down into the basement and they found the Ouija board down there and threw it out. Um, demons are real. Uh, why did Jesus come into the world? First John. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's exactly what this demon says to Jesus. Verse 34. The demon screams out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Literally, Jesus the Nazarene. Remember, nothing good comes from Nazareth. I don't know whether he's afraid or whether he's mocking. But he says, have you come to destroy us? Because I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The phrase there, the the Greek phrase where he says, what have you to do with us? Uh, Scholars say it's an idiom, which means something like, why are you interfering with me? Do not meddle with me. I guess when God takes on flesh and, and looks weak, uh, the demons can become emboldened. I don't know. But he was essentially challenging Jesus. What? Well, don't meddle with me. Why are you here? Why are you interfering? Because in other words, before Christ came on the scene, this demon had free reign of this man. He had complete control. He was comfortable possessing this man. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In the Old Testament, the person referred to as the Holy One of God was the High Priest, Aaron. Christ has come to be the Great High Priest. Notice that Satan and his demons don't ever have a problem figuring out who Jesus is. People do. All throughout the the Scripture, you'll see people reject him, deny him, don't know what he's all about, but... Satan right away went to him. He knew who he was. The demons know who he is. He says, have you come to destroy us? Now, who is the us that the demon's talking about? Well, it could be that he means me and all of my entourage, me and all of us, all all of us demons, Satan. Uh, Have you come to destroy us? And that could be it. But well, we don't know because, you know, you, you, you can only go by what context tells you. It could also be that he's saying, have you come to destroy me and this man, us? And if he's saying that, then what he could be saying is, Jesus, you can get me, but you'll have to go through him first. In order to destroy me, you have to destroy my host, and how are you going to do that? He could be challenging Jesus. You can feel the tension. You can imagine the tension in the room in that synagogue because up until this moment, Jesus has just been a man teaching with authority. But now he has a demon challenging him. Does he have the power to back up his claims to authority? Well, verse 35 tells us, Jesus rebuked the demon and said, be silent and come out of him. Now, for those of you who were here for our series in Daniel, you remember the angelic battles that are discussed in Daniel? Remember there's an angel, maybe Gabriel, that comes to Daniel after Daniel's been in prayer and fasting for a long time, and and what does the angel say? He said, look, I, I meant to come sooner, but it took me three weeks to get here because I was in battle against the prince of Persia. I was fighting for three weeks against a demon to get here. And he said, I I was only able to get here because Michael the archangel came to my rescue. And then he later turns around and says, and then I went and aided Michael one time in a battle. So, What we find out from Daniel when Daniel pulls back the curtains is that the warfare between angels and demons are very much uh, equal. Even archangels like Gabriel and Michael have trouble with demons. What about the Holy One of God? What does he do? He commands the demon. That's it. Luther says, one little word shall fell him. Now, not only does he defeat the demon with a command, but he keeps the man from harm. He doesn't have to destroy the man to get rid of the demon. And the crowds are amazed. They say to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And that's still What God uses today to release people from spiritual bondage, the word of God proclaimed. I mean, Jesus could have, I mean, presumably, he could have maybe gotten rid of the steam in any old way, although I don't know what way would have demonstrated his power more than simply speaking. But we can't release ourselves from spiritual darkness and death and oppression by reading self-help books. We can't fight evil in the world by waging war on it uh, in, in an ultimate sense. I mean, God instills government to bear the sword against evildoers, that is true. But our weapons that we use to restrain evil in people can do nothing to vanquish evil in the invisible realm. The only weapon that works is the preached Word of God. It worked then and it works now as God, through the preached Word and the work of the Spirit, releases people from oppression and darkness. Now Jesus demonstrates his power. He claimed that he had the authority to heal, and he demonstrated it, or to to release people from bondage, and he demonstrates it. And he also demonstrates, beginning at verse 38, his power to heal. Now, this is the first time Luke mentions Simon Peter. He says, Jesus arose, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. But we know, just from reading John's gospel, that this isn't Jesus and, and, and Simon Peter know each other already. Simon Peter has already been introduced to him. He's already uh, seen Jesus change water into wine. He's been following him. He he went down, he he saw him uh, uh, conversing with the Samaritan woman at the well. There are things that have already happened now. So Jesus and and Simon Peter know each other. So it makes sense then, uh, you know, Jesus isn't just walking into some guy's house he's never known before. He goes into Simon Peter's house and Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Luke, being the doctor, adds that it was a high fever. The other gospels just mention fever. Luke says it's severe. It's a high fever. She, uh, obviously, she can't even get up. She can't do anything but, but lay there. Maybe, we don't know, but in those days of, of not having medicine and, and uh, antibiotics, may, maybe it's a fever that could lead to death. We, you know, we don't know, but it was a bad, it was a high fever, and they appeal to Jesus on her behalf. I don't know who the they are. Uh, is it Simon Peter and his wife? Uh, James and John were there as well. Luke doesn't tell us that, but we find out from Mark's gospel that James and John, maybe it's the, the disciples, we don't know. But I don't know what they thought he was going to do maybe they thought he would heal uh, but up till this point they haven't I don't know that they've seen him heal anyone if you if you piece all the gospels together uh, the only thing that that I think they've seen him do thus far is change water into wine and tell a royal servant go your son is healed okay but they didn't see that healing he healed from a distance, if you will, and the guy left and found out that his son was healed at the moment that Jesus said, your son is healed. I mean, what, what did they think he would do? Look, we now live after 2,000 years of God's common grace and medical advancements, but in reality, what can a doctor do? Um, we... Again, by God's grace, we have advancements. We have surgical uh, things. We have medicine. And that's all great, but in the end, sometimes a doctor looks at you and says, I've done all I can do. Right? I mean, we still have that today. There are things that we cannot solve. And even when a doctor does hopefully try to solve this thing, he puts in place a a mechanism that he hopes will do what he thinks it will do. So I don't know what they thought he would do, but look at what Luke tells us he did. He, Jesus stood over her. Now again, we have to, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're going to just read over this and you're going to think, yeah, of course Jesus healed somebody but just put yourself there. Imagine what this looked like. If speaking to a demon, an invisible, angelic, fallen angel who uh, human beings have no power over, if speaking to a, a demon is crazy, at least the demon is a sentient being. The demon can talk. The demon can hear it. It can communicate. It might seem too powerful to overcome until Jesus overcomes it, but, but look at what Jesus does here. He looks at a fever, and he rebukes it. Now, now if, you're, if, if you are just looking at someone, shouting at nature shouting at an inanimate object, shouting at a tornado coming near their house, or shouting at the sun and the clouds and crying out for rain, Uh, you're going to look at that person like they're insane. Nature is not sentient, right? A a, a tornado looking at a fever and saying, be gone is is akin to looking at wind and waves and saying, be gone. Right? It's not something that a human being can do. But, but you see, when Jesus looked at the wind and the waves, he said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And the disciples were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, this happened before that. Jesus looked at the fever. He rebuked the fever, and Luke tells us it left her. An inanimate, non-sentient thing, a disease, obeyed Jesus. And just as there was an immediate calm on the sea, so immediately the fever was gone. It was banished. It was a thing of the past. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at his command, the fever was gone. And there was no laying around and bed rest for a day. There was no drinking plenty of liquids. Uh, No. Immediately, Luke said, she got up and started serving the food. Well, word got around. And in verses 40 to 41, we see that Jesus and his disciples had their lunch, but as it began to get dark, he was not able to get rest. Rather than being able to lay down and get some sleep after this exhausting day, instead his workload increased. And Luke says that all those in the surrounding area who had any who were sick with serious diseases brought them to him. Can you imagine what disease and illness looked like back then? Uh, we just went through something a few years ago, COVID, that that really scared a lot of us, right? And 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 we thought, hey, you know, doctors were telling us we, we've never seen this; it's novel. We don't know how bad this could get. And and again, we live in an era of of modern medicine, but people were frightened. And you can imagine back then when there there is there are no antibiotics, no modern medicine. When when somebody caught something, maybe it's 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 the end. And so if you have family members that are ill with something and you catch wind that there might be a guy that can heal them, you're going to do whatever it takes to get them there. And that's what happened. There's now a a massive crowd because, again, in an era without modern medicine, how many sick people were there? Some of these people were were being carried to him. Uh, And so all of these people being brought to him and there's a challenge. What could now an exhausted Jesus do for all of these people? Now it's interesting to me that if Jesus wanted to, given the time of day, given what he's already been through, given that he is a man now, a man who grows tired and weary, that Jesus could have, as he already demonstrated, heal with his word. As a matter of fact, he could have, given what he did for the the royal uh, servant's uh, son, I'm assuming he could have healed all of these people from a distance and not even had them come to the house. Or he could have had them come to the house and have them all gather in one place and then he stood inside the door and shouted one word of command and instantly everyone, kind of like an omnibus bill, everyone is healed instantly. That, that's what I would be tempted to do, I think, if I were him. Just, look, I know why you all are here. Let me heal you and be on your way so I can have my solitude. How amazing is it, then, that Luke goes out of his way to say that Jesus, at night, after a hard day's work, lays his hands on every one of them and heals them. He walks up to every person who is sick and touches them and heals them. So this man who has authority and power to command nature, authority and power to command a demon that it would take an angel three weeks to, to overcome, a man with that much power, nevertheless is that loving and gentle that he would touch the sick. What did all of these people think of Jesus? I mean, after everything that he does in this day, what did they conclude about him? What what did the disciples conclude? I don't know. The disciples always seem up and down about who they think he is. Uh, We'll see... We will see next week, in next week's passage, that Peter has a realization he hasn't had up till that point. I don't know what all these people thought about him. The the people that were healed, I don't know. Luke doesn't say. Those who had been freed from demonic possession, which we see, what did they think of him? What did Peter's mother-in-law think? I'm sure they were amazed, they were astonished, but when they asked themselves, who is this man, what did they conclude? Again, it seems like human beings have all variety of opinions about Jesus, but how amazing is it that God used his arch enemies to proclaim loudly for all to hear who Jesus is? Is at the end of everything that Jesus did, at the end of this day, it says that the demons all came out screaming You are the Son of God. How incredible is that? Luke has been had a burden since the beginning of this gospel to tell us that he is the Son of God. And we heard it at Jesus' baptism. We heard it at Gabriel's announcement. We heard it from Satan. We saw it in the genealogy. And now we hear it from the mouths of his enemies as they announced to everyone that this man is the son of God why did Jesus come to earth was it just to cast out demons was it just to heal because if that's the only reason he came to earth then then it it really didn't solve anything because every one of these people are now gone every one of these people that had a demon cast out or were healed are long since dead. They have long since faced judgment. Which is why at the very end here, what I wanted to touch on, in verses 42 to 44, the people sought him, they came to him, they would have kept him there because he did so many great things, but he said to them, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God because I was sent for this purpose. If all he did were the miraculous healings and casting out of demons, it wouldn't have been the thing that makes us right before God for all eternity. Jesus came here to preach the good news of the kingdom. That was why he came. And he came to be the good news of the kingdom. This man who had all power and all authority showed that he was a man of unbelievable eternal love that he would make himself the weakest of all people by going on the cross. But he did that so that one day, Christian, you and I, when he returns the second time, will have all evil vanquished from us. If we're gone, we will be raised in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And even if we don't have our diseases healed, now we will then. That's when I want mine healed. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in this world for all eternity. I want to live in the world to come for all eternity. And that's when we will be made new. And we will be made new because he, the Lord, has vanquished sin and death forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful for today. We are so grateful for this good news of the gospel. We are thankful for what our Lord did, not only in demonstrating his power but in demonstrating weakness and going to the cross and at the cross, ultimately completing the work that he came to do. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with hope that one day all evil and all sickness and all disease will be a thing of the past. May we focus on that today as we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.